Welcome to Behind the Curtain, L.A. Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us. The world premiere of Eurydice is made possible with generous support from the Bernard and Lenore Greenberg Opera Fund and the National Endowment for the Arts. Additional support from the donors to the Eurydice Consortium. And special support for this conversation came from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation and KCRW, official media sponsor of the Eurydice Found Festival. Welcome to this thrilling, thrilling evening. Uh, you're in for a real treat. And uh, before, before the main treat, we have the enormous privilege of welcoming these two exceptional artists uh, into our home, um, where we have had the privilege of watching them create this extraordinary work, um, which was years in the making. We've been watching Matt and Sarah create this opera for three-ish plus years. I may be even wrong about that. But of course, it starts even before that um, in 2003 with a play, an amazing play. And so I wondered if we could start this conversation with Sarah and uh, if I could just ask what it was about this familiar story to all of us, this incredible story that has been turned into visual art, performing art of every possible genre. What is it about this piece that inspired you to write this amazing play? Oh, great. First, I just want to thank you for um, all of your loving support here in making this piece of art together, and thank you all for coming. In the theater, we don't actually speak in public before opening night, so it's a bit of a, oh my god, really? We speak to people before. Um, so why the myth, why the Orpheus what myth? About, what about this, what about this myth that we all know? Um, what, what captured you? I think there's something about that look back. It's so deeply iconic, so impenetrable, mysterious, and yet immediately identifiable. And I think artists find their way into it in different forms and different times of their life. Um, and at the time when I wrote it, I was 26, which is, I think, about the age Matt was when he started the opera version of it. And so I think I was interested in a really... Um, in heartbreak, as we are when we're 26. I was interested in encasing my personal experience in a larger mythic structure. And I had recently lost my father when I was 20, and, and I wanted to, I think, have more conversations with him. And it made sense to me that Eurydice would meet her ancestors in the underworld, so she meets her father there, who kind of reteaches her memories and language. And the conceit is that when you get dipped in the river of forgetfulness, you forget language, and therefore you forget the self. So part of my interest was following this woman who in other incarnations of the myth is simply sort of a cipher who dies twice, and she's um, a stand-in for an idea of loss but you don't, you don't get to follow her down into the underworld. So that, that, was my, that was my way in. And, of course, the title of the, of the play and of the opera being Eurydice, it's looking at this myth from a slightly different angle that we all know of as the myth of Orpheus. What was it that inspired you to kind of give us more insight into this character that exists in, in this story every time it's told and yet has really never had her day? Well, I think we're... I mean, we tend to be interested in male heroes, and we tend to be interested in the mourner rather than the mourned. 
And I was interested in this person who died twice, which is such an interesting thing to have to do. I had read this Rilke poem, um, Hermes, it references Mercury and Eurydice and Orpheus, and he says, at a point, he's, he's the only male artist who I felt was really focused on the subjectivity of Eurydice, really interested in that. And he said at a point, it was almost as though she was pregnant with her death. And when the moment came to, to turn, she wasn't sure, I mean, this is a paraphrase, she wasn't sure whether she would follow. And that just fascinated me. And then I kind of dove in from there. Uh, Matt, if we could talk a little bit about your first exposure to the play and what uh, what led to your um, uh, interest in, in turning it into this work. Well, I think every composer has something of an Orphic obsession. It's kind of music's foundational story. It tells the story that music can, can bring you back from the dead, but it also says that that's not foolproof. And that feels really poignant to me because music can suspend time, but it can't do so indefinitely. In 2014, I wrote a piece called The Orphic Moment, which was for countertenor and solo violin and small ensemble, which is like a 17-minute explosion of what's going on in Orpheus's mind in the milliseconds before he turns around. And I had this fairly dark, twisted notion that he turns around in part because he knows that loss is really great for music. <laughs> He's a bit of a, bit of a loss junkie. Um, and, and so there's this, this subconscious calculation. Um, and you look at any Orpheus opera there's ever been, and basically the form is she dies the first time, he gets to sing about it. She dies the second time, he gets to sing about it even more. Uh, so I do think it, it, it opens up a, a somewhat dark look at the relationship between art and love. And I wanted to expand that piece, but eventually I got a bit depressed about the idea of living within that conceit for two and a half hours. And when I read uh, Sarah's play at the suggestion of my younger sister, Christine, and also of Andre Bishop from Lincoln Center Theater. First of all, I, I cried, as you will probably all end up crying at some point tonight. And I thought, well, this is a play that has not just darkness, not just grief, but the whole spectrum of human emotions. There are moments of surrealism and absurdity. There are parts that are extraordinarily funny and there is devastating loss. And eventually I sort of came to realize that the play does not just invert or retell the story of the myth. It actually is an entirely different story. The myth, the myth is enclosed within the play, but I think the play and hopefully the opera transcends its, its origin. And yes, absolutely. I mean, you'll notice that, that there is um, a lot of newness in this, and yet at its core remains a respect for or at least a reference to uh, ancient Greece and mythology. Sarah, I wonder if you can talk a little bit, some characters that you're gonna meet in tonight's piece uh, are like a Greek chorus, and for example. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about whether being referential to its roots was central to you or, or important in. Well, I certainly read the Ovid and the Virgil and, and tried my best to learn Latin, <laughs> but that was kind of a fail. Uh, I learned a bit. And there's a chorus of stones who you'll meet, uh, which already felt you know, quasi-operatic. And in the myth, um, when Orpheus comes down to sing the most beautiful music, he gets through the gates because he makes the stones weep. He makes, you know, uh, what else does he do? He makes the, the dog sleep. Right, Cerberus, probably. Yeah, Cerberus we don't have sleep. Cerberus, unfortunately. So the music has this kind of medicinal, grief-inducing, transformative power. So. Um, there's a chorus of stones, there's Hades who tempts Eurydice down, 
Uh, in the original myth, sometimes it's a serpent and sometimes it's a shepherd. And in our version, it's a kind of nasty, interesting man and with an elegant high-rise apartment who's not unlike Harvey Weinstein, maybe. <laughs> um, and then there's the father of Eurydice, which is an invented character, which is added to the original myth. One thing that I... Uh love so much about uh, both of your work, both in, in this piece and in your other works, is that you, there is, maybe this is the wrong word, but an economy um, in that every chord from Matt, every sentence from Sarah is packed with um, not just the surface meaning um, of what you're hearing, but something so much deeper, something so much more emotional. And I wonder, Matt, if you can talk a little bit about when you read this and knew it needed to be composed, what was the conversation like between the two of you? How much salesmanship did you have to show? Well, zero, zero sales. Yeah, I think zero. But um, I think one thing I said early on was that I didn't think it was going to take all that much adaptation to change it from a play into a libretto. And that proved to be true. I think if you know the play, you'll recognize the play. And that's in part because uh, this is not a Shakespeare style of verbosity. It's not like there are a million words per minute, um, and therefore we didn't have to cut out 80% of it the way that you, you do when you are going to you know, turn Othello into Othello. You, you throw out more than you keep. And we've kept more than we have excised. But I think what, what made me know that this play was crying out to become an opera was the musicality, not just of what is spoken, but even of the stage directions. I mean, Sarah's stage directions are poetry, you know. In the underworld, the father builds a room out of string for Eurydice. This can take time. It takes time to build a room out of string. I was like, hello, that's an interlude. And an interlude it has become. Um, so th this, I think economy is actually a, a good word, Josh, the, 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 but this is an economy that results from how much emotion is beneath the surface, and, and uh, music can sometimes unlock that. And um, Sarah, a similar question for you. We, those of us that live in the opera world, live with adaptation on an almost constant basis. Something came from a Shakespeare story, some, something came from mythology, something was a movie that's now, you know, etc. What, as the creator of the original source, what was going through your mind in considering an adaptation? I think adaptations are almost like um, those medieval alchemists, you know, trying to turn one substance into another. And if you get lucky and you have the right alchemy, you can change forms. I don't think everything's destined to, to change forms. But Matt and I had such a, a kind of seamless collaboration, and we're really lucky in that way. So, Matt, you know, as Matt said, he sort of lofted a great deal of the original into song. And then there were, there were parts that we felt we had to restructure. There's a part that's a little fragment of a Boethius poem when Orpheus comes down and sings at the gates of hell. And the reason for that was we thought, well, what would, in the, in the play, it's not sung. It's a silent moment. But in an opera, it seemed like too great an opportunity to miss. But it also seemed like, well, what could he possibly say that would be so beautiful it would unlock the gates? So we went back to this fragment of Latin where Boethius talks about the myth. And it seemed important that it was 
almost untranslatable, that there's like that fragment of Greek pottery, the shard where you see the opaque gesture, you hear the singing, you know, in the way that you hear a Catholic mass if you don't understand Latin, um, that it feels bigger than the individual, bigger than, bigger than um, an accessible language. And Matt, you had mentioned that very little had to be taken out from the play to become a libretto, but there is one major change, and there's a character that you'll meet tonight that is not in the play. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. So Orpheus is not the center of, of this story, but he's still important. Uh, and Orpheus has a split nature. He is human. It's fascinating reading the source material. No one actually knows where Orpheus came from. No one can agree on whether his father was Apollo and if his mother was a human. So is he, is he human? Is he divine? And the sense I got from Sarah's play is that he's a recognizable character in 21st century America. He's, he's an immature dude who happens to be really talented, and that's kind of frustrating because he's otherwise really immature. Um, but he does have this split nature. He's human, and he's also sort of superhuman. Um, and I wanted to find a way to musicalize that. And so Orpheus is actually sung by two singers. When Orpheus is behaving fully as a regular guy, the role is sung by a baritone. But he has what we call a double, Orpheus's double. It's like a, 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 a demon in, in, in Philip Pullman. Um, this kind of attendant spirit who we think Eurydice cannot see, but who is very much present on stage, who is kind of this manifestation of Orpheus's superhuman side. And what's wonderful about the countertenor voice which is a, a voice type in which a man uses mostly falsetto. You know, he's kind of an athlete who only trains the falsetto muscle. The countertenor voice has an ethereal quality that if you mix it with the baritone, which is the most regular guy of voice types, it, it's, it's quite a, a delicious blend, I think. So as we're talking about characters and, and giving a sonic world to these um, characters, I, I thought, um, you know, Matt, no pressure, but I did wheel this piano all the way from downstairs. <laughs> um, You're so strong, John. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and I thought, you know, no pressure, but that there might be an opportunity to hear some of the, the music tonight. I wonder if the way to do that is to start talking about the characters that we're all going to meet tonight and maybe see um, sure. how that conversation inspires a demonstration of the musical language Matt employed. Sarah, tell us a little bit about the father. Is that what, Matt, is that what Matt's going oh, to Oh, I don't know, Matt. What did you want to start with? Oh, I can go in any order. It's fine. All right. The father is a really wonderful kind, gentle person who has a really unselfish love for his daughter. He's from the Midwest, as am I. He's, he has a humility and a grace and a kind of plain-spoken conversational style. And you uh, started, the reason I mentioned the father first is because you started by saying that this was an, an opportunity for you to continue the conversation with your own. Is he modeled on yours? Yes. <laughs> Matt, let's talk about the father a little. Sure, so the father is sung by Rod Gilfrey, who I think this season becomes, am I right about this? The long, like the, the LA opera artist who has maybe sung here the most times? Is that, that makes sense. I remember seeing him uh, as a kid in LA, so that, that So, so uh, it's, it's, it's a great homecoming for, for Rod. Um, uh, the father's music is, 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 is usually quite sonorous and generous. I'm not sure what the most sort of representative music of the father is, but there's a, there's a, a moment when he's trying to teach Eurydice, who she is again. She's arrived in the underworld, and she's become a kind of amnesiac, and she's... Uh, it, it, 
doesn't know who she is or he is, and he's trying to calm her down, and there's this kind of suspended, mysterious but calming music. So uh, <laughs> sounds better when it's sung. Um, and there's also a moment near the end uh, when the father actually speaks. Um, and, and that is, is, is kind of, uh, for me, it, it's a manifestation of his straightforwardness and directness that there's a moment when singing actually feels too complicated. And maybe it's worth my giving some background to that moment. He's, he's about to dip himself in, into the river of forgetfulness again. And the idea was that he goes back to childhood and, and recalls the directions to his childhood home. And when I did the play version, I remember I did a version of that that actually felt more operatic and more theatrical and stylized. And it felt like too much, that it should be humbler and simpler. And then I found a note my father had written me with directions to his childhood home from Illinois to Iowa. And so that's really the text that, um, that the father speaks in that moment. It's a beautiful moment. Um, and so speaking of uh, the father leaving instructions for Eurydice, let's talk a little bit about her. Well, she loves books. She is in love with an artist. And she's very intelligent. And she goes through an incredible loss. Um, and should I, are you going to play the aria? Or are you not going to give that one away? I'll play a, a moment of it, maybe. Should I give some text for sure, it? Sure, yeah. So there's this moment where she has an aria that starts, this is what it is to love an artist. The moon is always rising above your house. The houses of your neighbors look dull and lacking in moonlight, but inside he is always going away from you. I think Eurydice's music is the hardest to characterize because she's the biggest role and she kind of contains a world. That particular moment is quite songful, it, it sounds a little bit like this. so on. Um, but also in, in, in Eurydice's part, there's, there's this kind of insistent, scary underworld music, which we think of as kind of this groove of forgetfulness. which is kind of this 
straining towards remembering something, and you can't. And uh, now to Orpheus. Though we have we have two of them, and is there is there something we can we can play to illustrate um, that? Yeah, for the uh, for the bit where he breaks into a dead language and speaks briefly in Latin, uh, I stole a, a technique from the great Hungarian composer Gyorgy Kurtag, who in his transcriptions of Bach uh, for piano imitates the sound of a particular organ stop where things are uh, speak in different octaves. In his case, it's separated by an octave and a fifth, so it sounds, in, in Kurtag, it sounds like this. this strange kind of mysterious organ stop effect, and I did a similar spacing of the voices between the countertenor and the baritone. It's, it's quite eerie, um, and it, it sounds like you're, you're in one key and another at the same time, which is an effect that I really enjoy. And Sarah, um, Orpheus, we, Matt mentioned um, in, in, in this Orphic moment, um, th this moment of what was going through Orpheus's head when he turned around, and could it have been possibly because the pain was his most creative time. Um, so I wonder, who is Orpheus to you? And there's, there are a few lines when Eurydice says, she, she's singing about something and says, this is what it's like to love an artist. Those of us have, who have loved artists know that it can be complicated. Well, yes, if you've ever loved a musician, you know they can be a little self-absorbed, just <laughs> at times. Not Matt. <laughs> not no. Matt, though, not Matt. Um, so I think he's 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 um, he very much loves Eurydice, but one doesn't know if their love would have survived into adulthood, into it would have, if it would have grown up along with them. Um, they're supposed to be quite young. That's important. Yeah, they're important, supposed to be really young and really in love. And I think it's it's wonderful what Matt did with the with the doubling, because Virginia Woolf used to say that um, all true artists are androgynous. So that she said the mind of Coleridge and the mind of Shakespeare. Um, the male and female are in sort of per perfect equanimity, perfect balance with each other. And so I think um, the double is a way of getting at the thrall of music that is always calling to Orpheus. And then, of course, Eurydice is calling to him too. And I think when I wrote the play, I was interested in the dialectic between language and music, with the idea being that Eurydice held language and Orpheus held music. And so at the penultimate moment, rather than being totally silent. Well, actually, I'm not going to give that away. Okay. I'm not going to tell you what happens. Matt, I want to talk about Hades, and I want to talk about the stones. Uh, which would you like to do first? Uh, let's talk about Hades. I, I don't think I can even give a representation of Hades at the piano, because <laughs> it's, it's pretty extreme. Um, so Hades, Lord of the Underworld, who we meet in the guise of a slightly unsavory, middle-aged uh, businessman, First, uh, he, you know, he lures Eurydice to his to his penthouse apartment, which actually doesn't, doesn't look all that glamorous in our production. In the end, he's distinctly the bad guy. And in opera, the the villains tend to be basses. They tend to be very low voices, and uh, the, the, that's it's it's a cliche at this point. And I felt that that wasn't right for for our Hades because 
uh, he's quite absurd. Uh, he, he doesn't quite know how to pretend to be a human being. Uh, he can visit the human world, but he sticks out like a sore thumb. And so I made him an extremely high tenor. Um, it, it sounds like he's on Extremely. Helium. Extremely. Um, so th there is the sense that he's on helium, but he's not really aware he's on helium. Mary, uh, Mary Zimmerman, our, our incredible director, said um, that she, she envisioned this role as if someone was trying to do their best at an imitation of human. Um, but always slightly inauthentic. And I think that uh, you kind of nailed it on that. Um, and so now we turn to the Greek chorus. Sarah, we had talked about this a little bit, but there's a trio of stones, and they interact with every character, or most of them. Who are they? And then, Matt, what, what do they sound like? They're basically the rule enforcers of the underworld. And I feel like tonally within the play, whenever things get too grief-stricken or soggy, the stones enter and kind of cut through with a, a certain kind of deadpan irony. But also, um, I think they're the people in our lives that don't allow us to grieve. They're the people in our lives that tell us to keep busy. They're very busy, the Stones, and they're, they're busy doing nothing. And Matt, how did you uh, take that and turn it into vocalism? Well, I just want to say first that I think this is part of the brilliance of Sarah's play, that there is this balance between really raw emotion and these sort of Kafkaesque, bureaucratic guardians of the underworld who say, stop feeling things. Uh, you know, I feel like they are a very real force in society, um, the Stones. Um, we have the stones and the dead, actually. We just, the who is missing, I think, but. Um, uh, they're also, they're, they're a bit like Hades, musically. Uh, they, they have to be extreme. They're, you know, Eurydice and the father and Orpheus are painted in pastels and the colors bleed uh, into each other. Uh, Hades and the stones are painted with very bright colors, very vivid colors, very obnoxious, hopefully sometimes funny. Um, they're little, little stone, big stone, and loud stone. Uh, Little Stone is a high soprano, uh, Big Stone is a mezzo-soprano or contralto, uh, and Loud Stone is another tenor. Not as high as, as Hades, but a distinctly loud one. And is there something we can hear from them? I, I think they also really need voices. Okay, to all right. That well, that is a, a little tour through this uh, exceptional piece. We're so thrilled to have you both here. It's been a real joy. And I know you are all in for a treat as, as you become the first audience to ever see Eurydice, the opera. You've been listening to LA Opera's Behind the Curtain. Thanks, and see you at the opera. If you've enjoyed listening to LA Opera's Behind the Curtain, you'll want to make sure you don't miss an episode. Please subscribe and leave a rating or review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to share this with your friends on Twitter and Facebook, and we'll see you at the opera.